Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, if you weren't here last week, we had like a lot of drama. Um, the result of which was that I wasn't here because I got stuck in Charlotte overnight uh, as I was trying to fly back from a thing in Asheville. Um, so lessons learned, don't fly in and out of Asheville, not worth it. Um, and don't stay overnight in Charlotte if you have an option. It's also not fun. Um, I did make it to like the last part of service, which is like kind of fun, but, um, but I wasn't here. So that meant that a lot of people had to scramble and do jobs that they don't normally do in order to make sure um, that we had an opportunity to worship together. And here's the funny thing. Um, we are in a series that has been all about trying to learn how in the world we actually function as a group, right? How do we grow as a community? And it didn't dawn on me that you guys did the thing until Monday. Like, I got home and, like, did the whole service on and, you know, helped pack up. And I got home Monday and I was like, they kind of did it, didn't they? <laughs> so why preach anymore? Uh, the, answer, the answer is because I had a sermon. I already had one, so I was excited to share it. And so that's what... Um, that's what we're going to do. We're going to wrap up the series this week, um, and then we're going to move into a new series, which is actually going to be on the second half of the Gospel of Luke, beginning next week. So that means that today we're wrapping up our series, Called Together, and now that we're here, and now that we've put things into practice, I want to admit something, which is that this has been one of the toughest series, I think, that I've ever had to teach. And here's why. Way back in December, when we made, ooh, I can't do that. I, like, hurt my ankle really badly early. <laughs> I just realized that my normal move of like propping the foot on the sand is a bad call. Um, what I was saying, so way back in December, right, when our preaching team met and put together our plan to study discipleship this year, um, we gave this series, which we knew was coming, we gave this series what seemed like a pretty simple goal. It was meant to be about unity and about reconciliation. And at the time, back in December, I thought I knew where this was going to go. I was expecting like sermons on forgiveness and teamwork and sermons to, to try and help us get excited about our mission here at Revolution. But as the year unfolded, um, something about our other discussions of discipleship thus far began to kind of bother me. And it was this, it was that they all tended to be about things that you and I can do as individuals. They were all like series and sermons about personal growth. And so as this series approached on the horizon, um, it seemed like it might give us a good opportunity to try and broaden our vision of discipleship, to include not just our personal behaviors, but our collective behaviors, our behaviors as a church family. And this new plan, um, as it was taking shape, got me pretty excited at first, because it felt like a chance to talk about old things in a new way. But by the time week one of the series started, I realized that there is something really difficult about trying to guide the behavior of a community without framing that guidance as guidance for individuals. How in the world do we actually talk about what we need to do? How do we actually go about keeping ourselves in sync? Is it even possible to, to think about community transformation in a way that doesn't begin as individual transformation. And so here we are now at the end of this series, and today's task is to try and pull everything together, not just for you as an individual, right, but for us. What really is the mission of the church? What is distinct 
about the way God plans for us to exist together in the world. And how can we learn to embrace that plan, not just as a bunch of little individuals in a room saying, I, I will do it, like I volunteer as tribute, but like as a community. Well, as is often the case, I think it's helpful to start with the things that we tend to misunderstand. In his excellent book, Simply Good News, the theologian N.T. Wright makes the case that the big reason that we tend to get church mission wrong is actually because we don't understand evangelism. We don't understand evangelism. And he points out that most churches, including this church, have a plan for witnessing, right, in our communities, a witnessing plan. We preach about Jesus on Sundays and invite people to confess their sin and to be baptized. And we go on mission trips, right, to underprivileged communities to try and read what I wrote, but it's a little harsh. What I wrote was this. We go on mission trips to underprivileged communities to try and barter acts of service for an opportunity to convince people to place their hope in Jesus. And we use Bible studies and small groups to keep everybody on like a healthy track. But what Wright points out is that even if these are all good things to do, they are still things that tend to treat the gospel as an idea that it is good for people to believe. We treat the gospel as an idea that is good to believe. And if we look more closely at the early church, we see that is not how people like Paul and other evangelists treated the gospel at all. Instead, what Wright points out is that in the context of the Roman Empire in the first century, the choice by Paul and others to use the word evangelium, to use the word evangelism, to describe how we're meant to think about the Jesus story is actually incredibly important and in that context, extraordinarily rebellious. Evangelium means literally to share good news, which most of us know. But the sense of the word news is the thing that actually matters. It's a term that was used at the time to communicate not just stuff that's happening, but world-shaking events that matter to the empire as a whole. So you wouldn't say that, like, you know, whether somebody brought in a good, like, catch of fish the day at the port. Like, that's not news in the way that we mean when we use the word evangelium. That's just stuff that you want to find out about. News is empire-level announcements. In fact, about 30 years before Jesus' birth, when the Roman leader Octavius defeated the general Mark Antony and seized absolute power as emperor, the word of his ascent was described as evangelium. News spread person to person throughout the world, but it wasn't simply information or an important idea. It was news that had these like three levels of bearing on the people who heard it. It was something that had happened that people needed to know about. Octavius won this war. It had to do with what was presently happening. Octavius and his army are on their way back from where the war was fought to Rome, and then it had bearing on what would happen which is that the entire Roman political structure was changing in a way that every person everywhere would eventually feel. And so when Paul and others adopt that word to describe the Jesus story as evangelium, as good news, they mean it in the exact same world-shattering way and in the same kind of level about something that had happened, was happening, and will, would still happen. 
Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul and others are saying, are something that had happened in the past. Jesus died and came back from the dead. The emergence of this brand new way of thinking about God and about life and about death that Christianity embraced, that was something that was happening at that very moment. And the transformation of the whole world into a kingdom of love and holiness is something that would happen in the future. So what they were going around saying wasn't that there is just another new way to live or even a better way to live in greater peace and purpose and harmony in the world. They were saying this. They were saying something important has happened. God himself came to live among us to experience our suffering and to take the sin of the world on his own shoulders, even to die. And then after he did those things, he lived again. Which means that the battle, not against Mark Antony, but the battle against death itself has been won. And now he is moving through the kingdoms of the world. God is moving through the kingdoms of this world, sharing actual death-defeating eternal life with people. And when he gets to his throne, the whole world will have been changed by this death-defeating God. The message came with the same basic point as the good news about Octavius, right? Which is that you have a new king, so get ready. When we talk about the first mission of the first churches, we have to keep it in this context, which is that churches, as they were forming around that news, existed as islands of good news of evangelium in the world. Little pockets of communities that had heard the news and were being transformed by it. There were communities already living in allegiance to the kingdom that was on its way. They weren't Roman any longer, no matter who they paid their taxes to, right? Because Rome was a past kingdom. And they weren't Gentiles and Jews any longer because those identities, those old identities, had been combined and absorbed into their new identity as Christians. And this is the key thing. They didn't go around doing nice stuff, right? Like feeding the hungry and healing the sick as a way of trying to convince people to believe what they believed. They did those things because those were the values and those were the way of life in Jesus' coming kingdom. You're not trying to convince people to do anything. You are living out Jesus' kingdom values now because you know that kingdom is on its way. Here's how Paul puts all of this in his letter to the Christian community in Ephesus. He writes, So then, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision, a circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. I'm gonna pause here because that term, he is our peace. Here Paul is deliberately using the term that Octavius ushered into the culture of Rome with the Pax Romana, right? Or the peace of Rome 
which is this Octavian idea that under a single emperor, if the whole empire were united under a single emperor, empire, then all of the territories of the empire could rest in the confidence that war between the factions would be no more. There would be a peace of Rome guaranteed by Octavius. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus' reign is our peace in that same way. Under him, all these old conflicts can cease. And so Paul goes on to write this. He says, in his flesh, he has made both into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us, abolishing the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. So the idea is that you have become Christian citizens through your faith. And now that you belong to this new empire, this new upside-down and still-emerging kingdom of Jesus, you no longer have to play by the rules of your old life. And what were the rules of your old life? Well, they were dominated by fear, specifically fear of exclusion, fear of punishment if you did the wrong thing, fear of poverty if you were born into it or if you found your way back to it. But in Jesus' kingdom, this evangelium is declaring that death has been defeated, that God himself is going to take care of you and that you have nothing at all then to fear. There is nothing the world can do to you or take from you that a God who defeated death can't restore. So what then can keep you from living the life of freedom, right, that Jesus has showed you how to live? If your spiritual and eternal needs are already being met, and what stops you from giving away what you have, right, to those who need what you have in order to survive? If death has already been defeated, then what stops you from stepping into places, right, that might be dangerous or reaching out to those who are still afraid and who you previously would have been afraid to be with? If you are already loved beyond all measure, not just now, but eternally, then what in the world could stop you from showing mercy and grace to other people who are starving for acceptance? The good news of Jesus is evangelium. It is a world-shaking announcement. And the testimony to that announcement is intended to be the living communities of the church of these little islands of kingdom living 
of new kingdom living right in the middle of old kingdom places. Each little island of believers living out the values of the new kingdom rather than the old and then offering a taste, right, of these new kingdom values to the people that surround it. This new kingdom is good. It is loving and generous. And if we can exist as little pockets of it, sharing that out, the point isn't to persuade people to agree with us. The point is just to be these kinds of people. Bible studies and small groups and all that stuff are wonderful things. You should do them. They're great. But they aren't supposed to be insular things. That's not supposed to be your Christian life. They are moments of fellowship. They're moments of encouragement. They're even moments of nourishment. But the point of them is to keep the wonder of what we believe, what we're trying to embrace with our lives, to keep the wonder of that stoked and burning in us. Sunday services are supposed to have that same purpose, right? We come together each week, hopefully, so that we can feel God's presence and our connection to him in worship, so that we can hear reminders of the stability and the endurance of the hope that we find in scripture, and so we can share our own experiences of being people trying to live out this new kingdom way of life in the old kingdom land, to share our stories of that experience with each other, and then, at the in, in our case, kind of three quarters of the way through our service, but it depends, but then, in the moment when we receive communion, to receive like a spiritual and also literal nourishment, right? When we come together. And all of this stuff that we're doing here isn't the point. And all of this stuff we're doing here isn't the good news itself. What it is, is a recharge of our batteries, right? It's energizing. And it's energizing for the purpose of getting us excited to keep living out our new identities as Jesus people, as good news people in the world. When we come together, we're supposed to find all of this stuff easier, if only for a moment. And we can be reminded that what we're doing isn't something, even though it can feel like it when we're out in our lives throughout the week, it can feel like something that just we're doing, that we're doing all on our own. We come together so we can be reminded that we're not on our own. That we're not out there doing all this by ourselves. This new kingdom, in its very essence, is not personal. It is not just about me and Jesus or you and Jesus. It is communal. And it always is intended to draw us deeper and deeper into trusting and loving relationships. I come here each week, as long as I'm not stalled out in Charlotte somewhere. (laughs) I come here each week because I need to feel and experience this. Everything else in this world, outside of this church community, everything else in this world tries to pull me away from relationships with other people and center me on myself. To center on my ego, to, to... make me obsess over my exceptionalism or my performance, be it good or bad, or my attractiveness, whether it be good or bad, or my accomplishments, or my wealth. Everything tries to pull me back into me and away from you and away from community. And when I gather, though, I can let all of that other stuff go 
And none of that stuff has to matter. And I can just be with you. Just be with people. And I can feel in my heart when we do this thing that this Jesus way that I'm committed to really is better. It really is better. And I can be refreshed by this. And then I can go share that good news by living it out. So yes, I would love to buy you lunch. <laughs> Jesus puts it directly and he puts it clearly to his disciples in a verse that I'm confident you've heard a million times. He says, I give you a new commandment, right? That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. The church is the evidence of the good news. That is our mission. And the thing is, we can only do that if we do it together. We have to fearlessly love people. All of the values of Jesus' kingdom come together in this. It's the thing that Jesus did. It's the thing that we, because of all that stuff we already talked about, all that evangelium, it's the stuff we're free to do. It is what once happened, right? When Jesus stepped down from heaven and into the manger, that was a choice to be in communion, to be in community with people you love. It is a thing that is presently happening, right? As the Holy Spirit of God goes into the hearts of believers and transforms us into people of love, making love come easier to us than it did as, we're, as we're, we gain more distance from those fears that keep us from loving. The Holy Spirit working in us to make us people of love is a thing that is happening. And it is also something that will happen when the saving mission of God in the world is complete. And heaven comes here. And we are meant to be emissaries of this news, right? Ambassadors, as we talked about two weeks ago, of this reconciliation. And even though your personal holiness, right, and your personal health is a part of that job, it's not the point of this job. When we come together as a community, we're giving ourselves over to something. We're giving ourselves over to something. I lost my spot. <laughs> so I'll say is this. We're doing something when we come together and we choose community. We're doing something that takes real courage. Because we're allowing ourselves to be vulnerable with each other. And to trust one another. And when that works, right, when we are vulnerable, when we're courageous, when we trust, when that works, when people on the outside of this church look inside and they see real and mutual love among us, when they see so much love among us that it pours out, right, that it pours out of us, when they see that, it can help them find real courage too. It makes the good news real, not as an idea, not as like a life philosophy that's better than other life philosophies, not as a moral system that's better than other moral systems, 
but as a living and embodied announcement that the love of God really has won, is winning, and will win. So you see that if that's what evangelism is, you cannot do that on your own. You can't demonstrate the effectiveness of being courageous and vulnerable in the way that you love and trust people by yourself. It can't be done. The whole point is to testify to the living reality of something new. And that's not possible when we think of faith as something exclusively personal, as a life philosophy we can get behind or a moral system. Christianity is meant to be what we proclaim in our loving, forgiving, patient, gracious, generous, and interconnected lives. That's all great. You guys seem pretty into it. But here's the thing. I still haven't told you anything about how we're going to do it. How do we actually grow? And I've stalled to the last five minutes of this series. How do we become a more reliable, a more vibrant, and a more healthy island of good news in the city of Annapolis? A big part of the answer is heart work. Right? We have to allow things to change inside of us. That's hard, it's not quick, slow, all that. You have to allow things to change inside of you, to let go of your fears and to learn, little by little, to better trust and to love each other. But there's another part of this that is homework, right? We can be consistent and we can be intentional about which kingdom we are living in. We can be consistent and intentional about which kingdom we're living in. Last month, I took my kids to D.C. to go to the Air and Space Museum. I guess six weeks ago. This is outdated. Remember, I wrote this last week. <laughs> so five weeks ago, I took my kids to the Air and Space Museum. And I learned something really important. You need tickets, which I didn't know. <laughs> and so we rode the metro, all that stuff. We like walked in, and they're like, sorry. So here we are. Long story short, we ended up over at the Museum of American History, which nobody wants to go to, so free and no tickets. And it had been a while since I'd been in the Museum of American History. Um, and honestly, the thing I was most surprised by are how many vehicles are in it. There are a lot of like cars and trucks. There's not one but two imitations of an L train in it. Like there's a lot of just vehicles. But nonetheless, by far my favorite artifact in the Museum of American History is actually tucked away in a corner of the basement. I wouldn't have even known it was there if we hadn't been looking for a bathroom. <laughs> but here's what it is. It's the actual lunch counter from the Woolworths in Greensboro, North Carolina, where in 1964, African-American college students sat down and asked to be served a meal. I can't believe they had that. It was so amazing. Anyways, as you know, you probably remember the story, the owner of that lunch counter refused. The students chose to keep their seats. And this act of faith led to six months of nationwide sit-in protests at other lunch counters throughout the segregated South. And I can't imagine like, the courage that it took for those students to do the thing that they did. But what I can imagine is the hope that led them to do it. Because it was anchored in a belief, right, that they were already citizens in a better country 
than the one in which they found themselves. The America they belonged to was bound by law and by spirit and by ideals to treat them as equals. And it was this America, the America they found themselves in, it was this America's fault and failure to be true to itself that their action was exposing. I'm not saying that our work as a church is the same as their work. But I am saying that our work, like their work, is a matter of living out the values of a better kingdom than the one you find yourself in. And in doing so, our work, like their work, can give people who are afraid the courage to believe and even to live differently. So it matters, not just for you, but for us, to love each other wholeheartedly. It matters for us to love all of our neighbors recklessly. It matters for us to love this whole world, as messed up as it often seems to be, to love this world courageously. And we can do that because we have been set free to do that. And because we know that a loving kingdom is coming. And we want to be ready for it. I want to close with this. In the 13th century, scholars uncovered a lost letter from the year 130. It's actually one of the, like, what well, sounds like I'm saying in time, 130 AD, the year. It's actually one of the oldest sort of documents we have describing the period, and specifically the existence of the church in that period. And it's written, the context of it, it's written by an anonymous investigator to a Roman archon in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. And the purpose of the letter is it's a description, like a report from his investigation to his boss about the trouble being caused in Alexandria by Christians specifically. The author notes in this letter many of the strangenesses that he identifies and sees in Christian practices. Communion is a thing that just freaks people out. Has for 2,000 years, still does. <laughs> and he certainly outlines why a lot of their beliefs might be troublesome to the empire, how they might sound like rebellion to the empire. But this guy, whose job was just like a PI, right? He was like sent to investigate this disturbance. At the end of this letter, he writes that there's no denying the blessing that the church in Alexandria has been to the people of Alexandria. And he says this about Christians. He says they are to the world what the soul is to the body. May it be so. That is what we are called to be, friends. The soul of this body. The light and the life and the love of this world if we can't see each other as intimately connected together, if we can't see each other as one, we will be a pitiful soul indeed. But because the thing that we are sharing really is good news, really is evangelium, it will change us. Death has been defeated. Jesus is alive and the kingdom will come.
So may we learn more and more together how to embody this new citizenship, this living hope that we're called to be together.